you know, we have the oldest housing stock of any country in Europe due to the fact that we build so little uh, new housing in this country. And it's so old and it's so, such poor quality that any new housing by comparison seems like a luxury. And, you know, whether that's to do with kind of the size, whether that's to do with the materials, whether that's to do with um, you know, the lack of, kind of air conditioning or um, kind of nice kitchens, et cetera, our kind of expectations are so low because everyone in this country is so used to living in such poor quality housing that, um, you know, I think it's you know, tragic almost that, that we've become so used to conditions of shortage that the idea of kind of new, high quality, affordable homes delivered without much fuss or much kind of political controversy is seen as completely unrealistic and un- unfeasible. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's special episode, we're going to be speaking to Anne Beach from the Centre for Cities about planning form and later Chris Berg from Melbourne to talk about second lockdowns. Uh, unlike usual, we're going to be speaking to our guests separately and getting their insights about these very important issues. First, Anne, you're at the Centre for Cities and this pandemic has, I suppose, really brought to light questions about what is the role of cities, what is the contribution? I wonder how you've been finding that debate and, and what you've been doing during lockdown, even personally, and how that reflects on cities. Are you as sad as the rest of us about the emptying city streets? Or are you celebrating the idea of longer commutes and less time spent at work? Where, where's your thinking at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really been a dramatic shock um, to cities in particular over the past few months, the, not just the lockdowns itself, but then the behavioural change that we've seen uh, across cities in the UK. Uh, and in particular, what we've seen is being that those cities with the uh, most productive and most prosperous um, city centres have actually suffered the greatest shortfall in, in activity. And I guess what we're going to, what we expect of the next kind of coming months and years, although there's people kind of talking about the uh, kind of this move towards working from home and a, um, a kind of the end of the city almost, um, I think the fact that people have not been able to experience that over the past six months or so means that it's, it's going to return with a hunger, I think, once kind of the lockdowns are fully ended and once people feel safe uh, in being able to return to city centres. And, and we're already starting to see that uh, in the data which we've collected on uh, urban mobility within cities. So I think it's partly due to the um, Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which has been launched. But I think also as people feel safer, as, um, as kind of transmissions stay low, I think we, we're going to continue seeing that um, the, the continue to be important. This, this was actually interesting enough. So I did a, an article a few months ago now with Rory Sutherland uh, for The Spectator about the future of work. And we kind of made an argument around flexibility and this idea that it would be a win for workers um, to have the opportunity to go into work and people might slightly change where they live as a result. I think there's some early evidence of that. But what we kind of disagreed about and and it didn't really get kind of sold in the article is the idea that cities aren't going to die. Um, and I think there's an important reason that because cities are more than just places people work. They're marriage markets where people go to find people to meet. They're places where we go to socialize, especially when we're young, which I think really gets into what we're going to be discussing today, which is uh, this government's planning reform proposal. Because the government has released a white paper that is supposed to revolutionize house building in the UK. Uh, the UK will move to a zonal type system with councils required to allocate land for growth, renewal, or protection. 
Um, and they also plan to simplify some of the rules and introduce design codes as well. But before we get into some of that detail, Anne, I'm kind of interested in unpacking what you discussed in your recent paper from just a couple months ago now on planning for the future, where you compare Britain's existing planning system to the shortage economy of the former Eastern Bloc. Um, I was wondering if you could take us through that metaphor and explain to us what the problem is with the current system. Sure. So um, listeners of your podcast maybe um, I just don't know how much they know about the um, existing planning system, um, but they may be surprised to learn that um, even if a developer follows all of the rules within the planning system or tries to follow those rules, they can still be denied a planning permission. They can still be denied the right to develop. And that's not a kind of bug in the system. That's a feature. It's what's known as the discretionary element. So what will happen if you're a developer proposing um, to build a new house or, or to build a new urban extension is although there is a, a plan which has been set out and the planning process must be plan-led, so it must correspond uh, to the plan which has been set out, uh, the developer can propose something to the planners and if in their judgment it does not comply with the plan, it can be rejected by the planners. And even if the planners kind of say, okay, like we, we support this, we, we recommend this for approval, it then goes to the next stage, which is a major development, um, which is a ha- more than a house or two. Um, and there's an, a vote by locally elected councillors as to whether this development should actually proceed or not. And what this does is it systematically ratchets down the supply of housing across the country. Like there's no, nothing gets proposed which does not comply with the plan and then is given, is given planning permission, obviously. But what, what happens is the this kind of uncertain kind of case-by-case decision-making systematically disconnects the supply of houses from the demand for new houses. And this kind of behavior, this, this, this discretionary case-by-case decision-making was exactly the same kind of um, structure for decision-making, the same kind of institutional setup that we saw in the details of planning in the former Eastern Bloc. And as we all know, um, these, these systems were plagued by chronic shortages uh, throughout their existence. And it's no surprise that it's the same in the UK as well, that our discretionary case-by-case planning system also creates shortages uh, of homes in our system. Yeah, and I think it's probably important to recognise that this is a relatively recent phenomenon. We've only had really the current planning system since 1947. And before that, uh, there wasn't no planning, but certainly planning almost practically didn't exist before the 20th century. So the idea that you would need um, specific approvals to do what you like with your property is something that that is inherently problematic as a, as a system design. Like you, you don't need permission to go um, produce a certain product, but if you did need that kind of mission, you can imagine how long that process would take and how difficult innovation would be and how you could increase prices and how if you were a producer of a product, you could use that system to try to keep out competitors um, and ensure a slow drip of housing to, to keep up prices over time. Yes, that's exactly right. And so going back to, to that 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, it was a real kind of deviation, both from the planning systems which had previously existed in the UK. So there'd been a number of numerous uh, bills going back in the 1930s and 1920s, which were overseeded by this act. Uh, and also a de- it's a deviation from international best practice as well. Um, so what's kind of key to understand about the housing crisis is it's not something which is inevitable about housing, something which is special um, about land as a, as a commodity or, or as a part of the economy. The housing crisis is the product of political choices and it's caused by how those political choices shape the design of our institutions and the institutions which regulate um, and control and ration 
uh, the supply of land for development. And uh, in, in our case, we've chosen very flawed uh, institutions to regulate planning and the supply of land. And, and the result is a, is a shortage of houses. I think it's a, a very important point as well that is not inevitable that housing will have shortages and increasing prices. There are places, if you look at uh, Dallas and Texas, or is it Dallas or Houston, or if you look at somewhere like Tokyo, where there is plenty of development, there is plenty of housing because they have different institutional frameworks that are people to build it. But I think we can often disconnect ourselves here when we're talking in a global sense. What this really means practically for people is the fact that we're paying outrageous amounts of rent. It means that a lot of people can't move to where they'd like to or where they might be the most productive as individuals because you're locking them out of, of the cities that are where the most economic potential is. So this has a, a really huge impact on economy and a huge impact on individuals, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. And that geographic element um, is really the most visible sign of, um, of the inefficiencies and the problems caused by the shortage of houses in the UK thanks to our planning system. So you end up in a situation where Cities and towns like uh, like Oxford and like Brighton, they're very expensive, very kind of desirable labour markets with high wages um, and lots of potential for job progression and growth. These are places which are building fewer houses or at a slower rate than places like uh, Wakefield or Telford, um, which even though they have weaker local economies, they have kind of lower wages and lower prospects for uh, growth at, at this moment in time, are building far more houses than uh, places like like Brighton and Oxford. So you, you've just got a systemic disconnect between supply and demand across the country, which means that in places like Oxford, the average house will cost 17 times the average income. And in somewhere like Burnley, where, which has the most affordable housing market uh, in the UK, the average house will cost about five or four times the average income. But e- even in those kind of poorer markets, I think that the international comparison is really important. Even in those poorer markets, it's likely that people are still overpaying um, and experiencing bad value housing uh, relative to international peers. So for instance, kind of Burnley, again, the most affordable city in the UK uh, relative to local incomes, actually has a lower vacancy rate. So kind of a lower share of empty houses than Tokyo does. Wow, that, that's amazing, isn't it? And I think the, the first point to make about the proposals from the government in their white papers, they actually acknowledge that this is a huge issue, which I think is an important start is that the planning system has failed and the failure of the planning system is the reason why we we have a housing shortage. Uh, The question, I suppose, is then how does the government intend to go about fixing that and and what makes these proposals different to any others? Yeah, so so you can touch on it a little bit at the beginning there, saying that the government is broadly going to simplify the process and uh, divide land into three different areas. So there's going to be uh, kind of growth areas, renewal areas, and then protected areas and all land in the UK is going to be categorized according um, to these three types. And although in kind of protected areas, so that would include areas such as uh, conservation areas and the parts of the existing greenbelt, where you're going to continue to have the uh, kind of normal process that that we experience currently, where there's not much development and, and the supply is rationed, in both kind of renewal areas and also in growth areas, we're going to move to a quite different system. Uh, One in which the there's going to be much less kind of case-by-case decision-making, and especially within growth areas, that there is already going to be, the principle of development is already going to happen in, in those places. It's already accepted. And to the degree that there is uh, negotiation or there, or there are details to be worked out, 
They will be either about technical elements, about infrastructure, so as the layout of roads and kind of um, sewerage, et cetera, and also the implementation of design codes as well. And what this will do is if enough land is introduced into that growth area by local authorities, is it removes that discretionary case-by-case -case decision making from the planning system. And it brings us back into line uh, with international best practice and much closer uh, to places with much more affordable housing markets where broadly, if you're a developer, if you buy land, or if you kind of acquire land and you assemble it into a development site, then you know that you will be able to develop that particular site. That you know that if you proceed through the planning process, um, you will be able to build houses on that particular site. And that changes the strategic behavior of developers to want to build as many houses as possible to as high a quality as possible and sell them as cheaply as possible. Yeah, I think I think the key element here is the fact that the democracy is going to move up front as the government is putting it, which is to say, rather than the existing system in which there are plans uh, and that is part of the system, the, the fact that those plans don't actually mean that much since you need to get secondary approval for each individual development. And they say it can take something up to like five years through that. Now, um, it kind of obviously going to vary a lot by, by different proposals. But the existing system of planning um, leads to that, that huge lack of supply of new housing because of that extra stage of needing approval and leading no local negotiation and, and local politics coming to each individual development rather than having one stage, which is political, which is just broadly de deciding the kind of standards of houses that we want, deciding broadly where they should be, and then not caring so much about the specifics. I think that's basically like any other product, really. Uh, we have general standards for automobiles, and we say that every car should require uh, seatbelts, let's say, as we've decided is necessary. Um, you can have a separate debate about seatbelts and whether or not they actually make us safer, but uh, or whether people just take more risks. But we've decided that, that that is what we think should be in a car, and we don't require each new model of car or each even each individual specific, um, I should say, each car that comes off the line to have a new approvals process. Yes, exactly. And broadly, as a democracy, we've also agreed that people should be able to buy cars and drive cars around. Like imagine if on your particular neighborhood, every time you wanted to buy a car, you had to have submit um, your application uh, to get permission to own a car, had to be passed by local planners and then by a local planning committee who would then uh, be subject to the political pressure from your neighbours and your voters not to give you a planning permission for a car and allow uh, more cars on the street and more traffic and more congestion. I think separate even from whether we think that would be a good idea or not, the obvious effect would be it would reduce the amount of cars that are currently in the UK. But that's the system we currently have uh, for regulating housing in the UK. And unsurprisingly, we have, a, we have a shortage as a result. So there's a few other key elements in these proposals that really stuck out for me, the first one was this idea about building beautiful, following on from the work of the late Sir Roger Scruton and this idea that, well, we can get broader community support for housing if we ensure that they're built to certain standards design-wise, because a lot of the reasons why people oppose housing developments is they just don't want ugly concrete rocks near them. And therefore, if you just upfront decide on a design code, ensure that everyone fits that design code to make sure it suits the local aesthetic, you're not building something that's ugly and that's out of place, you can get broader support for that. Is that something that you kind of personally support, Anne? Or are you more of the view oh, who cares what houses look like? You should be able to decide what's on your own property. Or is it more just this is the kind of political compromise that we should be willing to make just to get those houses, even if the community does want to set design codes, that's reasonable enough. There is an externality of the facade in which is in your house. Therefore, it's not completely unreasonable. And therefore, we should support these wholeheartedly. Yeah, so I think if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, 
what I thought about the potential for design codes and, and, and their role within the planning process. I would have been quite sceptical. But I've changed my mind on that o- over the past two years, I would think, um, it's particularly for uh, materials and for facades, that if there's kind of, if you, uh, as mentioned, front load, but democratic process, kind of the input in, into the planning process, um, into the creation of a local plan, and you create these design codes where people express um, a wish to use certain kinds of materials or um, certain elements of a local architectural vernacular to continue within uh, within their community or on the outskirts um, of their on kind of new urban extensions that arise. I think that's I think it's a, an acceptable compromise to make, and I think it might actually address some of the concerns that kind of more wavering critiques or more wavering critics of, of new housing might might face. So I think if you look, I think the way in which to think about design codes is they should be a, a route to um, kind of accessing that kind of rules-based progress through the planning system rather than an additional opportunity to introduce case-by-case decision-making. So broadly, if something complies with the design code that has been set out, and that could either be quite flexible or it could be um, quite specific in some of the details around materials and facades, then it should automatically get that plan permission, right? That it should, should unlock that particular route. Now, if, if a developer then wants to propose something which is kind of more unusual, right? Or something which is a bit um, kind of out of keeping with the architectural style, it might still be a new or interesting or cool design, you know, it's like something of grand designs, uh, et cetera. And there should still be a discretionary process to kind of allow uh, such buildings to proceed for a new zoning system. But it's really important that we have a system which allows that um, smooth and kind of clean progress through the planning system if we are to have design codes that work. Yeah, and this is a key part of the proposal, which is that you will get fast track approval if you fulfill a truly beautiful idea of what a house is. It's not exactly clear to me what that means at this point, but I think it's an admirable idea to really both incentivize something that people want, which is beautiful housing, but also incentivize what we need more broadly for the economy, which is more housing. The other interesting part I found about this uh, proposals was this idea of scrapping um, the, the Section 106 agreements for the smaller developments, um, which require a certain number of social housing and kind of replacing that instead with a more consistent levy. Now, to me, the kind of social housing model or the, the affordable housing model, as, as it's called, is to effectively requires kind of a cross-subsidy at the moment where you, you don't realise that when you're buying your new apartment, but you're actually largely paying for them to have to build for somebody else's apartment as well and at a lower rate. And the people who ultimately benefit from these individual schemes are not necessarily the poorest, but they actually end up being kind of uh, lower middle income earners or even middle middle income earners who just happen to be at the right place at the right time and can afford to buy into one of these um, quote unquote affordable housing schemes, which which tend to be um, well above the average income to get into anyway. So do you see this as a kind of improvement to have a kind of more consistent system of, of contribution to social housing and as well as, I suppose, consistent contribution to infrastructure that might go along with the house? Yeah, so um, Section 106 agreements, which are the current way in which um, affordable housing infrastructure and um, other schemes which local authorities want um, to fund through development are a really bad form of taxation, right? Because these are essentially taxes which are negotiated with the developer, again, case by case, in a very unpredictable way, uh, in a process that encourages kind of bargaining and stalling and ultimately, ultimately kind of unclear benefits for all kind of 
unclear kind of welfare benefits to, to the population uh, as a whole. So what the government has set out and what we've previously recommended in our research has been that this regime should be uh, abolished and it should be moved towards a new uh, infrastructure levy uh, scheme. What we recommend is that at the point of sale for new developments, which are, which are built, that a 20% of that final cost of that final sales price should then be taxed and then given to the local authority which um, in which the development has taken place and used to fund new social housing, new infrastructure, um, wh- whatever the local authority deems is in its best, um, best interest and is most needed within that particular community. And what that does is um, not only will it allow for kind of a more straightforward and smoother kind of way of raising funding for social housing uh, and for infrastructure, but it might actually make, we, we reckon it might actually raise more money for social housing uh, and infrastructure across the country. So we did some work with uh, Professor Paul Cheshire at the London School of Economics on this last year. And we estimated that um, even just around uh, development in around train stations in the existing Greenbelt, around five major cities in the UK, uh, including London, uh, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, and Newcastle, um, you could build 2 million homes within walking distance of these train stations and you could raise £96 billion to pay for social housing and for infrastructure as well. And that's way above the receipts which we're currently getting from uh, from Section 106 over that same time period. So it's both like a more a new kind of levy will be both more efficient, but it also actually raise more money, uh, we reckon, than the, than the current regime. Yeah, and absolutely much fairer rather than kind of arbitrary amounts, depending on how good you are at dealing and wheeling politically. I just want to move on quickly um, and just kind of respond to what I consider to be this amazing phenomenon of planning denials. These are the people who basically don't think the government's reforms can do anything because the real issue is not the planning system. And I'm just going to throw these out at you uh, for you to debunk one at a time. So the first one is this idea that nine in 10 applications are approved and it's really not this planning system that's to blame uh, because clearly the planning system is approving all these applications. Isn't that true, Anthony? Not really, unfortunately. I mean, what this argument kind of assumes is that um, there's no kind of change in expectations, right, from how the planning system regulates and rations supply. When, if you're a sensible developer, you're not going to propose to develop something which you think the planning system is just going to reject. Right. So you're always going to have a situation, regardless of how many applications are actually approved, you're always going to have eight out of 10, nine out of 10 applications being approved by planners because developers are not going to be silly and propose things which are um, which are not viable. Like there was a vast kind of amount of applications which are never made uh, because developers think that planners will not approve them, but which would actually work, which would be financially viable and which would be good developments and where people would want to live. But the currently the planning system, to, to, mm. to the planning system, those are invisible at present. But and aren't developers sitting on a, a million approvals already? Can't they just get off their back, start with all this land banking, uh, and actually build the the homes that they've said that they're interested in building? Wouldn't that solve the whole crisis? So of that kind of million approvals since uh, 2010, about 600,000 of them have expired since. So those are um, uh, approvals which are no longer valid. Of those kind of remaining 400,000 approvals. Um, I mean, this is behavior, which um, there's this land banking behavior, as it's, as, it's, as it's known. We only see this in the only part of the economy where production is controlled by a planning system, where developers are incentivized to apply for more permits than they can actually use at any one time uh, to create a safety buffer 
which in the event that they are denied planning permission means that they will always have a constant stream of sites and of lands to work on. So what, what this is, is that the developers are applying for stuff, which they then don't immediately build on because they're trying to strategically manage the risk, which is inherent to this case-by-case -case discretionary decision-making decision in the planning system. Like if we move to a system in which there was like a flexible zoning system or a system in which if you just applied for planning permission, you legally must be granted planning permission, that behavior would disappear. There would be no need for developers to do it. Yeah, and I think the other element here is also a competition element. So to the extent to which there is an incentive for developers to not build where they have approvals, part of that is because nobody else can come along and build somewhere else nearby and therefore undermine the whole business of, of holding on to the stock. Um, we, in any other industry, you know, we don't see land banking in televisions, for example. We don't, we don't have warehouses full of unsold televisions because uh, Sony thinks that if they hold on to them and, and release too few into the market that the, the, they can charge more for each individual TV. But they can't do that because Samsung can come along and offer other televisions that at a lower price and therefore there's no incentive to hold back supplying something to the market. Um, next one I wanted to move on to was this uh, one that we hear a lot, especially from the, the Tony Blair Institute who blame interest rates for high housing prices. Isn't cheap money allow people to bid up the, the cost of housing? Yeah, I mean, I think the geography of uh, housing affordability is the clearest evidence which shows why it's not all just about monetary policy. It's not all about credit and interest rates. So the fact that, you know, the average house costs 17 times the average um, income in, in Oxford and the, the average house costs about five times the average income in Liverpool, considering they both have the same bank interest rates set by the Bank of England and have the same mortgage regulations and the same experience to um, capital markets. If it was all just the money supply, they would have exactly the same affordability ratios or at least be in the same ballpark. But instead, they're at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And the reason is because the importance of urban economies, of people wanting to move to cities where they can get a good job, where they can experience higher wages, have enjoy really good amenities, um, and uh, you know experience really good fast and rapid job progression means that there are some places, some places and parts of the country where there is much higher demand for housing than in other places. But the way that our planning system works disconnects the supply of new homes from that demand for new homes, and that's why you get this imbalance across the country. Well, uh, I do think there is a bit of a story in kind of from the 1980s of. Um, asset inflation globally pushing up um, house prices, um, I would say, uh, uh, most parts of the developed world over like a 40-year period. But that's not really a problem which housing and planning policy can solve. Like the planning, planning system in the UK should work well regardless of the conditions of global capitalism. And it's a bit much to expect um, you know, the Bank of England alone or for the planning system alone to be able to uh, reverse uh, those global trends. Yeah, I think, again, this is a bit of a competition issue in, in a sense. So you, you can see some effect of the fact that there are low interest rates that people can afford to spend more on housing, but it's really a lack of, on the other side of supply. So it's because you, you do have more money, in a sense, chasing uh, fewer potential houses. And therefore, you know, from a basic, you draw your demand and supply uh, curves, you're going to push up prices. But if you have a situation where you can have uh, more money or the same amount of money chasing more supply of houses, you're not going to see substantial increases. So if you can build more houses, you're not going to have this issue with with the amount of income that, that people have uh, potentially pushing up housing. 
the last critique we've, we've heard a lot of, I want to put back at you, is this idea that in the end, it's just going to be the, the wealthy developers who, who benefit from this. They're just going to build luxury housing. There's not going to be any affordable housing that anyone can actually afford to buy. Um, and that this is just going to be a, a boon for, for somebody else, not for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that this speaks not so, more to, I think it just speaks to the low expectations we have for housing in this country. That, you know, we have the oldest housing stock of any country in Europe due to the fact that we build so little uh, new housing in this country. And it's so old and it's so, such poor quality that any new housing by comparison seems like a luxury in comparison to what we currently have. And, um, you know, whether that's to do with kind of the size, whether that's to do with the materials, whether that's to do with um, you know, the lack of air conditioning or um, kind of nice kitchens, etc., our kind of expectations are so low because everyone in this country is so used to living in such poor quality housing that, um, you know, I think it's you know, tragic almost that, that we, we've become so used to conditions of shortage that the idea of kind of new high quality affordable homes delivered without much fuss or much kind of political controversy is seen as completely unrealistic and un- unfeasible. Ideally, what we would want is a system in which the supply of houses is responsive to local demand, such that um, what is currently described as luxury housing is in fact seen as completely ordinary, middling quality uh, new housing that's accessible to and affordable to all. Well, on this week of extraordinary heat wave, and as I sit here sweating away, as I am sure you are too, I think the idea of high quality housing full of air conditioners is something that uh, should absolutely appeal to everyone. I just want to thank you very much, Anthony, for all your time. Uh, we really appreciate your insights. Great. Thanks, Thanks Matthew. We're now joined by Dr. Chris Burke of RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Chris is a former colleague of mine at the Institute of Public Affairs, where we're both adjunct fellows. Uh, Melbourne is now in the extraordinary situation of having some of the harshest COVID-19 restrictions in the world, including not only instructions to stay at home, wear face masks at all times outside of your home, uh, to not travel within five kilometres. There's even requirements on shutting down non-essential shops, uh, one-hour exercise limits, and are now an 8 p.m. curfew. Um, Chris, how are you finding the the second lockdown experience? Is it more grueling than the first one that, that happened back in March? I mean, I mean personally, it's devastating because my kids have to come home and we have to return <laughs> to homeschool, which had, which had um, eased for a while and was just a great delight. But um, I think, uh, speaking on behalf of the city, um, I think there is a great deal of despondency that there wasn't in the first lockdown. In the first lockdown, uh, Australia was doing very well. Um, In uh, Victoria, where Melbourne is located, we had, I think the top was 100 cases a day or something along those lines. It it, it only got one day above that um, and, and very rapidly reduced. So it was very easy to see the light at the end of the tunnel. At this stage, however, um, it's much harder to do so. Um, it's harder to see, I think w- looking at it globally, it's harder to see once you get case numbers in the hundreds and up to more than 700 we had a couple of days um, in a row or, or sporadically anyway. Um, it's hard to see how you actually get get rid of the virus. We're in an unusual position in that we felt like elimination was possible in Victoria. Elimination has occurred 
in other Australian states. It's occurred in New Zealand as well. So the 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 thrill that we had, feeling that we could eliminate it, yeah. um, and the yeah. quick turn into despondency has been, I think, a real challenge. And it's had um, some really substantial mental health issues that have both been reported and and I know anecdotally um, uh, across the city well before we start talking about the economic consequences. Yeah, so I, I wrote about Australia's uh, success story um, a couple of months ago now. Um, and I remember at the time thinking as as Australian, feeling a little bit almost arrogant about Australia's success. Uh, and and it's worth, I think, unpacking what Australia did well to begin with. Um, so it was it was things like um, a relatively early, early border closures to China um, in requiring anyone who comes to China to quarantine for 14 days before coming to Australia. Um, and then subsequently, relatively good and broad testing and tracing, or at least so it appeared at the time. Um, and then border closures uh, to Europe in, in mid-March when all the cases were coming back. Um, in fact, border closures everywhere in the world. Australia became, uh, along with New Zealand, one of perhaps the most closed ca- countries in the world. I mean, at the time, I thought it was effectively good strategy, but now it's increasing to me looking like good luck or at least subsequent failed strategies. So the, the second Melbourne lockdown seems to have been very closely associated with uh, those particular hotel quarantines, the the people returning from overseas as as a point of infection. So, so what happened there, Chris? Well, look, I'll make two points to that. So it, luck is a huge part of it, right? Because in, in my assessment, we were really close to not having that initial luck either. If the Grand Prix had gone ahead on um, one of the weekends in March, then, I, you know, uh, the Grand Prix being... Um, a a moment where people fly in from around the world, I think it would have very quickly gone out of control. But we did get it under control. Um, uh, it never got that high, so it was easy to contact trace. Um, it was easy to to manage the sporadic output, uh, uh, sporadic um, outbursts. But what happened in the case of and then we and then we ended up with a situation that um, we had a fourteen day quarantine for all visitors, not visitors, all Australian citizens returning to. Australia and permanent residents returning to Australia, and they were mandatorily quarantined in hotels, which is and still is best practice. Um, you don't just send them home; you put them into um, hotels. You may charge them for it, but but you keep them in there. Um, uh, this was a, a disaster in Melbourne, uh, partly because they um, outsourced it to a sort of lowest common denominator security agency. Uh, security, a private security firm, I should say, um, uh, instead of using uh, the police. Part of it was um, uh, just just poor bureaucratic management. We're going through a inquiry at the moment to find out exactly what happened. So all these um, claims that I make are quite provisional, but it seems like it was just a classic bureaucratic stuff up. Now, I think there's a lesson there, though, right? I, I think that it is the nature of this virus that even though you might live on an island, even though you can completely close your borders, you're always going to have leakages of people, leakages of... Um, uh, there are always going to be opportunities for the virus to get in. Um, and it's going to be very, very hard for you to be even barely connected to the rest of the world and also stay completely virus free. Now, 
if we think of vaccines coming soon, then that's a that's an interesting temporary problem. But if we think of vaccine as a long way off, if it's if we're not going to see a vaccine until you know the first half of 2021 or the second half of 2021, then that becomes a serious problem for those countries that have eliminated the virus. Are yeah. they capable yeah. of entirely closing themselves off from the world? Yeah, I mean this is this is the challenge they've been facing in even in second spikes in some of the places where they thought it was disappeared, like in Beijing or, or South Korea. Um, what I found fascinating about the the hotel quarantine was the fact that um, in Victoria, as opposed to everywhere else in Australia, um, the responsibility was put into the business department and it was done as a, as a make job scheme. And there's even some allegations that it was chosen on the basis of, of equality and diversity and choosing uh, people who would be politically correct to do the security rather than people who would be capable of doing it. And that was reported by uh, by the, the age. It wasn't even, which is a kind of notionally kind of centre-left paper, which I, I thought was something you don't often see. There, there is a strong suggestion that some of these um, uh, these security contracts, which were written very, very quickly, were nonetheless in pursuit of... You know, I mean, government departments, they always have little social justice riders. We've got to make sure that we're spreading work equally. We want to pro- uh, prioritise um, uh, employers that um, support disadvantaged workers, all that sort of thing. And, and I can understand why they do that. Um, but in this case... Um, it may have left us with um, a subpar security subcontractor. So what's interesting here as well about, I think, the Melbourne lockdown is the sense of proportionality about it. So in the scope of things, while Melbourne does have an outbreak, I mean, there are there are up to 700 and uh, over 700 cases a day, and it's gone down a bit since that, that um, maximum level. Uh, that's positive tested cases. The actual number of people in hospital seems to be not particularly high, and nor are there... Uh, particularly high numbers dying now of course every death is a tragedy um but it's it's i think it's something like a dozen people or so a little bit over that day are dying compared to the uk at the maximum of lockdown was uh, well over a thousand people a day and that was a very long and, and tragic period and yet at the same time it seemed like the melbourne kind of lockdown um escalated very quickly what started as some specific suburb-based lockdowns to try to target areas where they thought the cases were coming from um, some questionable lockdowns of uh, very harsh lockdowns of housing commissions, kind of public housing flats in Melbourne, and then Melbourne-wide, a kind of what was called stage three, so kind of uh, moderate lockdown, closer to what the UK had, and then go to stage four, which is probably, you know, for a metaphor, kind of an Italian or French-style lockdown where, where you're, you're locked in your home. How did that go kind of politically in Melbourne? Was, was it the sense that which... Um, we have to just go harsher and harsher because there's still any cases. And the, and this goes back to the point you were making towards the start, that if you set elimination as, as the target, you have to go extremely harsh. Or are they just potentially going so harsh more for symbolic political reasons? Um, you've got uh, Daniel Andrews, who's the, the, the Premier in Victoria, the, the state governor um, in Victoria, who seems to be quite forthright in the sense that he wants to be seen to be doing something. I mean, you've got the likes of um, a curfew. It's not clear to me that COVID spreads less in the evenings, um, but <laughs> I, maybe there's some science I haven't seen. What's kind of motivating some of these kind of very harsh measures relative to the limited number of cases? There's a number of points I'll make there. So um, the government 
the, the government's actually been um, frustrating to um, get information out of, not because the Premier isn't spending two hours a day standing in front of a press conference, but because they're not giving us the information we would like. So some of what I'm going to say is um, supposition about what they're thinking. Um, they have not been looking at... The, 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 the best argument for what the government's done is it's not about the total case numbers. It's about the total community transmission. So it's the cases that we can't trace. And they were jumping very, very high before we moved to stage four. We, it was in the community and out of control, and that's why they did it. But to your broader point, I mean, y- y- you're right. So we only have, I'm just looking at the numbers now, we have uh, 650 people in hospital at the moment in Victoria. We have 43 people in ICU um, in Victoria, and we've got 24 people on ventilators. This is well, well, well within the capacity of the healthcare system. And it's well within the capacity of the healthcare system in part because we invested so much in it since March, since the first lockdown. We did precisely what we should have done, which is um, take the opportunity of the first lockdown, opportunity that the first lockdown gave us and just wildly invest in hospitals um, to the extent that we were in a bizarre situation, like a lot of places around the world, that um, we had so much hospital capacity that was lying dormant, but you couldn't do things like elective surgery. So you had pretty serious financial crisis in the healthcare system in the middle of a in the middle of a health crisis, which is which does create um, some interesting challenges. Um, so I, I think that's what they were thinking. Uh, what the state government has done is basically deliberately crash the economy. We are no longer talking about freezing or hibernating the economy. We have now driven it to a crash. Um, You've pointed out that the retailers, um, the non-essential retail has been shut down. But I'd like to also point out that non-essential everything has been shut down. And of course, the government gets to decide what is essential or not. Even the essential um, things, let's say distribution centers, abattoirs, um, uh, food manufacturers of all kinds, anything, any large business that is essential has been subject to a government order to reduce staffing numbers by one third. They are reducing, reducing, and 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 in the the premier's language, we, you are going to reduce output by one third. Now, I think this is this is terrifying to me um, because uh, supply chains, as we know, in the first wave and globally speaking, have held up actually pretty well during this crisis. There have been interesting challenges, but they've been mostly around panic buying and that sort of thing that didn't necessarily reflect genuine supply shocks. What we are doing in Victoria is is inducing a supply shock. The Premier has said that um, you will be able to get what you need, but you mightn't be able to get what you want and in the quantities that you want. That's a good way to simulate panic buying as well, isn't it? Well, well, it is, especially when they start making vague claims about the possibility of a stage five. But um, uh, at the same time, this is an extraordinary experiment in a free and democratic state, free democratic country, that um, in in economic planning. And I'm really concerned. We're a week into stage four now, but I'm really, really concerned that. Um, we're going to have serious distribution problems uh, in a couple of weeks, and that's when things will get will get bad. I hope that doesn't happen, and I might be wrong with that prediction, but I just can't see how you can shut down a third of output 
in abattoirs and keep the same level of production. Yeah, I suppose the hope is that you have enough interstate and international. Um... Well, I'll make a point about that, actually, Matthew. I'll, I'll, I'll make a point about that. So um, uh, uh, that's exactly right. So if you recall back to the start of this crisis where um, uh, conservatives, national conservatives around the world were arguing that this was a great opportunity to um, reduce our dependence on China. We weren't making things in well, in Australia anymore. We weren't making things in the United States. We weren't making things in the United Kingdom. We were too dependent on free trade. Well, thank God we have free trade because otherwise Victoria would not be able to get the goods that it needs because we are legally not allowed to produce them. Well, I mean, it's the same story, of course, in the UK where, uh, although, thank goodness, the government actually was... um, in the of the view that you should go to work if you can't work from home that was actually always the guidance so you could basically define what was essential by in negotiation with your employer now a lot of businesses did shut down probably unnecessarily partly because of fear of the spread of the virus but that that wasn't directed by the government um you could if you were an in-person um business and if you had anything to do with supply chains when it came to food supply you were operating at full steam ahead throughout the entire lockdown uh, but at the same time, um, only half or so of the food consumed in the UK is made domestically. So the UK was extremely dependent for the entire lockdown and, in fact, for, for the last few hundred years on uh, imported food. And, and people see that as a weakness. People see that as something that undermines food security, but it's actually the opposite. Um, the more diversified your supply chains are, the more secure they are, the more different places you can tap for food. If there's a flood in the south of Spain that, that takes off some some crops down there, you can always go somewhere else if you have secure globalised supply chains. I think that's not often acknowledged. Yeah, that's right. So you were... I, I, and the, the broader point that the controls that governments put on the economy prevent us from being adaptable. And I, I've always argued this in the case of technological change or... Um, or a recession, but in a time like this, where the um, there there is no bureaucrat, there is no department, there is no politician that has the capacity to predict what our needs, restrictions, requirements are going to be. Not in a year, but you know, in a month. Um, this is exactly when we need a flexible economy, from trade to regulation to, to even taxation and things like that. Is there any kind of domestic opposition or any strong domestic opposition uh, to, to any of this kind of second lockdown? Or is it all pushing the direction of lockdown harder and faster? And I note that, that fascinatingly, uh, the parliament's not sitting. Uh, I think the police now have the, the power in Victoria to overwrite any law in a kind of state of emergency type situation. And also when I was at university and we heard the idea of a state of emergency, uh, it wasn't something that was particularly supported by my, my lefty academics or something that they quite frightened because you can basically do anything by declaring a state of emergency and you can you can exercise power in entirely different um, and undemocratic ways. It seems like a lot of what uh, Victoria is doing, if it were being done by the likes of Orban or Trump, um, you'd, you'd probably be seeing an international outrage about it, but it's not, <laughs> very, it's, not, it's not getting very much attention. Perhaps democratic norms aren't uh, fundamentally undermined, but in terms of what the direct... Um, results of this is that there's not a lot of accountability on on the Victorian government. Yeah, that's right. So it's not just a state of emergency, it's a state of disaster. And that gives the 
police the power to it's override the next level. Law. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a. It is a lawful direction, of course. I mean, it, so so it exists within a uh, rule of law framework. It, it. They didn't just make it up. Um, uh, it's it's based on legislation and its well, constitution. Well, of course, so it's, Chris, doesn't that depend on whether or not you consider the rule of law to be what's written down in the law or yeah. what the law should be? Of course, <laughs> in the United Kingdom, it is slightly different. Um, uh, <laughs> um, the, but everything's that, just that, un- unwritten here, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's what we would call the vibe of the thing in Australia, as you know, Matthew. Um, uh, so, so it, it is it is lawful, but it, you're right; it's created some really um, challenging accountability problems it's also and i don't know whether this is the case in the united kingdom but it is the case in australia that there seems to be a pro-lockdown culture um that has uh developed uh not a pro-lockdown culture as in making sure that people don't unnecessarily go out partying or not wear masks or something like that i mean a political view that to doubt anything but the maximum version of lockdown is somehow a um, a moral violation. So, you know, the crudest version of this is anytime you criticize one of these policies, not not the not the suite of them, but just one of them, you will get a response of, you know, well, you want to kill your grandparents or something along those lines. Um, which is hard which in that environment, and that's a environment on social media, that's an environment sometimes in the press, it makes it hard to have a serious conversation about the marginal benefit of these policy choices. Because as you say, we have a curfew between 8pm and 5am. It is very unclear to me why a curfew prevents the spread of um, COVID-19. And, and now, I think 5 I know... AM, not not 5.30am, because not 5 30 virus doesn't I... between 5... 5 and 5.30, it's obviously now, arbitrary. Of yeah. course, I, I'm asleep in all those hours, but nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what, well, I, I think I know why they did it, though. So um, one of the things that happened in Stage 3, so we're in Stage 4 now, in Stage 3 is they had some really serious compliance problems. They found it very hard to enforce the rules that we had on the books, the public health orders that we had on the books. So what they did is... in introduce a bunch of new rules that don't directly tackle COVID-19, but they make it easier to monitor compliance of the stage three rules. So stage four is a list of laws that just makes it easier to enforce the list of laws in stage three. So they now the police, when they see someone driving at 3am in the morning, they can more easily assume that you are breaking the law. We can require you to carry a work permit if you claim to be an essential worker. That's a, that's another thing you didn't mention. We have to get work permits if we um if we want to travel uh, uh, more than five kilometers out of our home. It's very French style. Um, it's very French style. But um uh, I I think that I think that's what's going on. And now from a it's not necessarily a violation of rule of law in in the strictest sense, but from a good public policy perspective, the fact that we just keep cracking up new restrictions, increasing the burden of the state just because the state found it really hard to enforce the old restrictions is just, it's fundamentally illiberal in every sense. I know it's weird to claim something is illiberal in the middle of this crisis when so much has gone on, but it is um, it, it has really struck me as a, um, a as a as a real step in legislative philosophy, I guess legislative action. Yeah, I think most people will 
broadly, even on the kind of more liberal, libertarian or conservative side of politics, were pretty accepting of, of some level of lockdown and some level of loss of restrictions of liberty. But of course, that has to be proportional to the what the benefit is. And if they're bringing in restrictions that, that limit liberty that aren't necessarily achieving very much to limit the spread of the virus, then yeah, it, and, is, and- it is by definition draconian. I'll, I'll make a I'll make another point on that, right? So we are no longer in March. We are no longer in February. We know a lot more about this virus. We know a lot more about public policy. We um, we're not operating in the same absolute lack of information than we did back in February and March when it wasn't clear or we were being told that masks weren't necessarily helpful when we, it wasn't clear what the um, how deadly the virus was. It wasn't clear about um, a whole bunch of policy-relevant factors. Um, in, in that environment that we were in in February and March, I have a lot of sympathy for governments that had to make a really tough decision in an almost information-free environment where they knew that the downside risk could be absolutely enormous. We were all looking at the um, the Spanish flu pandemic. We were all looking at the history of pandemics and we were all terrified. What I do not accept, so I'm quite accepting, or I, I can understand sometimes why they made those decisions. What I do not accept is that the policy decisions we made in February and March are the correct policy decisions to be made in August or September or October when we just know a lot more than we did. It cannot be that the only answer to this is only ever lockdown. It, it, we, it just can't be that. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, a lockdown to me is a failure of other policies because if, if you're a successful country in tackling this, like South Korea, uh, you actually never have a broad lockdown you just have very good testing and tracing but i think where melbourne really is a is a worrying um case and and in some senses why it's actually gotten quite a lot of international attention is because it's not the first time but it's the second time and it shows that uh, uh inability to i suppose handle any level of risk or handle any level of managing this virus um as well as uh, the fact that in a sense the goals are changing and I think you hinted at this earlier, the fact that when we, when we were shutting down in March was for a very specific purpose. It was to expand healthcare capacity um, in order to ensure that we had enough ICU beds, enough ventilators, something that didn't end up actually being that helpful ventilators, but it would seem like we need a lot of them in March. And if we keep the case low enough, then we're not going to overuse that capacity. Now, th- what is unspoken about flattening the curve is that you're not actually eliminating the curve. It's that you're pushing the cases below and, and spring them out over time. Now, it doesn't seem like it's the strategy anymore. Governments haven't admitted to this explicitly, even in the UK, where it's definitely not flying the curve anymore, but it's not exactly eliminated. It's somewhere in between in terms of the strategy because they're accepting some level of spread. It's just when the spread gets too high and too broad that they start locking down new cities like they've done in, in the Northwest. They're, they're doing these kind of regional lockdowns, which I guess are better than a national lockdown. But what Melbourne tells me, and, and this is why I think it might be particularly interesting to listeners all around the world, is a sense in which um, people will clamour for a second lockdown and potentially less so in Europe just because it's it's felt like it's been going on for so long, but also the sense in which the strategy around this has changed so fundamentally in a way that 
might be working towards an unachievable goal. Perhaps if there's a vaccine coming soon, it would make sense, but we don't necessarily know if a vaccine is, is coming any anytime soon. Perhaps it makes sense if we have better treatments. But in fact, we kind of do already have better treatments. The, the amount of people who get COVID and die in hospital as a, as a percentage has gone down. We seem to be much better at working out what, what to do with people just because sadly there have been so many. But how, what, I suppose the, the question becomes, what, what, what are we trying to achieve now with, with COVID and all these lockdowns and all these measures we're having? And, and what does Melbourne tell us about that? Well, in Victoria, um, we're quite explicitly not trying to flatten the curve anymore. Um, the justification for the stage four lockdown was that we were tracking on average around 500 cases a day. And the Victorian government said that um, while that was stable, so it was almost always around 500, they could not accept it staying at 500 um, for the foreseeable future. So until until Christmas, they were talking about. That's what their modelling suggested would happen in the absence of a um, in, in the absence of a um, harsher lockdown. Now, a stable caseload is exactly flattening the curve. It's a flat curve. Um, uh, it, it is exactly what the flatten the curve strategy would suggest. Um, now. I, I the way I think about it is I, I we in the commentary class we in the public we took the strategy to be flatten the curve in part because there are all these memes that popped up on Facebook that very famous graph the flattening the curve graph but very few policymakers ever stated it that way. Um, very few jurisdictions were ever that clear about how they expected the policy to develop and what their precise goal was, how they would be measured, what would we consider to be success. And I can understand why they did it because they don't want to be held to it and they don't want to be... um, they don't want to be pursuing a policy that makes political problems for them as well. And I think that's what's happened in Victoria, and I think that's what's going to happen everywhere else. It's not that government... I mean, I'm talking to the Adam Smith Institute, right? We know that governments don't aren't these benevolent, wonderful actors who make the correct decision in the public interest at all times. That is precisely the public choice of the uh, case for the panic uh, pandemic as well, that governments have responded to um, electoral demands, they've responded to um, demands out in uh, in the media, in social media, uh, to, to, to have these lockdowns, not necessarily based on a coherent public health strategy, but based on the mood of the population, based on the... Um, the the, um, the the political demands of the time. I think that's what's happened um, this time. Uh, just just a, a the febrile atmosphere of Melbourne over the last well, just before stage four for the two weeks before stage four kicked in was insane. You would get neighbours, family members coming up to you just with rumours. Oh, there, there's a rumour that Dan Andrews is going to bring in stage four. Um, uh, you would hear it from absolutely everyone. We would get these rumours washing around Melbourne every couple of days. Um, stage four was basically inevitable once everybody started expecting stage four to occur and once many people started demanding um, the government do stage four because otherwise, you know, why wasn't the government acting in this state of crisis? 
yeah, and it was it was something similar in London in in March or in the UK in March, where there was talk of shutting down cities and uh, people's kind of travel restricted. There were all these rumors about the military being deployed. Uh, and then the, then there was an audio clip going around of a, a gentleman announcing that they were producing a, a giant lasagna in Wembley Stadium that um, that would be <laughs> delivered to ensure that there was enough food uh, as a rumor heard by somebody in a, in a supermarket. So yeah, I, and, I think- and government, governments respond to that. Governments have to respond to that. That's what they're set up to do. They're run by politicians. They are responsible to their constituents, um, uh, and and they have to respond to those sorts of things. But we should not kid ourselves that this makes optimal economic strategy or optimal health strategy. Well, thank you very much for your time, Chris. We really appreciate it. And also uh, to Anne Breach, who spoke to us earlier about planning reform, um, please do subscribe to the ASI podcast in your chosen podcast provider. And a special thanks to our producer, Dan Pryor.